It's 2022, which means it's a renewal year and you need CEUs. 30 if you're in South Carolina, and three of those have to be on ethics, jurisprudence, and whatever else goes in that category. Look, the year's going by fast, and you can knock out all those requirements with a MedBridge subscription, and you can get 40% off with the discount code BETTERFASTERPOD. I have a friend named Shelly, and she's a little lazy. Her words, not mine. She hasn't done any Con Ed over the past year and a half until she got her subscription set up. And what she does is she just puts modules on her phone while she watches 90 Day Fiance. Great show, by the way. Is she learning anything? No. But is she getting the local governing bodies off her bat? Yes. Your subscription also includes NSCA credits, OCS certification prep courses, patient education, home exercise programs, EMR integration. There's tons and tons of resources. Again, use the discount code BETTERFASTERPOD to get 40% off your individual subscription. That's the best price that MedBridge offers, okay? Only the best for our listeners. Now enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody. It's Monday. That means it's time for another episode of the Better Faster podcast. And this week, Brian and I interview Seth Oberst, PT out of Atlanta, Georgia. And I have to tell you, this is one of the most informative episodes we've ever had. I found myself trying to take notes during our talk, but realized I'm just going to have to listen to it a second time. There's just so much great info here. Seth takes a very unique approach into how he helps his patients. I think you're really going to like this one. As always, guys, if you could take 30 seconds for me and go to iTunes and leave us a review. It's really how we reach more people, how we move the meter. It's very much appreciated. Please leave your comments or questions so we know what you want us to talk about. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Welcome to another special episode of the Better Faster Podcast. Today, Josh and I are joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Seth Oberst. Now, Seth is not your run-of-the-mill physical therapist. He is, in my opinion, one of the most brilliant minds and forethinkers in our profession. Now, Seth currently practices at one-on-one physical therapy in Atlanta, Georgia, and he's also an educator. Seth is known for providing a holistic approach to movement and rehabilitation as a unique approach to addressing stress and pain, which selfishly for my own clinical practice, I hope we dive into deeply in this episode. But first, Seth, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm doing great, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Glad to have you here. Um, so I just want to kind of start out with the basics. Can you tell us about your story, kind of how and why you became a physical therapist and what you're currently doing? Sure, sure. So I, uh, you know, originally uh, became a physical therapist, kind of the traditional method um, in that, you know, played some sport, played quite a few sports in high school and growing up, had some, you know, orthopedic injuries and and um, I really liked the, and when I did some observation with my PTs that, that it helped to rehabilitate me, I, I really liked the, the capacity to work with the whole body. And, um, you know, when I, when I shadowed some other type professions, I found them really boring compared to the opportunities um, as a physical therapist. So that's really, really, really where it started. Uh, and then, you know, so I, I got a, a degree in exercise science in undergrad, in undergrad and then, um, I got my, of course, as you said, my, my doctorate in physical therapy. Um, and, you know, kind of during that, I was really interested in sports. I've always been interested in sports. Um, and so after I graduated um, physical therapy school, I went on into a sports residency for a year where I, I worked even more in depth with, with athletes, kind of the running the gamut from, you know, um, competitive, you know, age division athletes all the way up to to professionals. And, um, it was a good experience, but, you know, I kind of, and I'm sure we'll get into this. It was, um, kind of not the end of, of kind of my kind of path, I suppose you would say. Yeah. That, that's interesting, man. Cause you know, I think it was like five 
years ago you and i first met yeah and back in the day you were seemed to be more geared towards the the crossfit clientele but it seems that nowadays you and this might not be a true statement but i think it is that you place your efforts more into dealing with chronic pain uh, lifestyle and things in that realm is that true absolutely it is yeah i um you know so i worked in fact when i was um when i finished my, my sports residency, I was, I was working with, um, in a CrossFit gym in Greenville, South Carolina, um, not too far from where you guys are. And, uh, and I loved it. It was a tremendous gym. It's called Swamp Rabbit CrossFit. They do great, great work. Um, but I was noticing, um, both in the CrossFit gym and then in my, in the clinic that there's these kind of common problems underlying all the patients I was seeing, whether they were high level athletes or just recreational athletes, or even people with, with back pain for, you know, five, 10 plus years. And, you know, a lot of this, what I noticed is particularly in the athletes is that they looked good, right? They looked fit, but they didn't feel good. You know, many of these guys and gals couldn't sleep. They were felt they were chronically tense. I mean, they weren't unable to relax on the treatment table. And that's one of the biggest things I noticed ubiquitously, ubiquitously across the, um, with my clients is that they were unable to relax. And, um, you know, many of them were, were really stressed out and they were using exercise as a way to, you know, mitigate some of that stress, but obviously it wasn't, it wasn't fixing the problem, hence why they were coming to see me, you know, and then when they would get, if they got blood work, they, they were showing up with autoimmune conditions, low testosterone or sex hormones, you know, signs of adrenal dysfunction and, you know, all of these things were, were Kind of coalescing to me and they were co- coalescing for me and, and it, in my own life you know I was working out hard um, uh, really working a lot and really getting uh, feeling pretty bad myself uh, feeling very anxious feeling very um, stiff and just stuck both mentally and physically and that's what really opened me up to this whole um, this whole notion of of if I'm going to really reach people and really help them to the best of my abilities I have to understand um, stress and how the body manifests, uh, stress. So that's kind of where I kind of have gone from that. And I still work with athletes if they're sent to me and, and I've, and I've had some great success with them, but I find, um, that I, I really work with, with a lot of people that are, that are, um, you know, have a lot of problems, uh, physical med- problems, mental problems, anxiety, depression, um, of course, I'm not treating their anxiety and depression, but they're coming in with those things and it's affected by uh, how they feel in their bodies or how they don't feel in their bodies. So can that, that's really interesting because I feel like that's something that, that is becoming really prominent in the profession. You know, we see it all the time with all the, the literature that comes out regarding pain science. It seems to really yeah. fit into that realm mm-hmm. very well. But can you be a little more specific about like, what kinds of things are you seeing like are these things that we can measure like are there metrics or you know we hear things about heart rate variability um just you, you know you say someone's stressed out like is that i, I guess uh, how do you get the conversation started basically? absolutely so great question so there's a couple different ways that we um can quantify uh their stress response one is heart rate variability which is the beat to beat variation in the heart, heart rate you know the healthier a person is the actually the more variation they have in their heart it's a sign of, of um, a healthy, flexible system, autonomic nervous system, which as you guys may know, you know, the autonomic system, autonomic nervous system is the system that runs the background um, uh, workings of the body. You know, it, it's, it's in charge of our breathing rate, our heart rate, 
uh, blood pressure, digestion, uh, and a whole host of other things that we can get into. But um, so yeah, so we do. I do measure heart rate variability in people. I have them track it um, every morning so that we can see where they are. So the lower that heart rate variability gets, meaning the more rigid and predictable their heart rate is, uh, is a really good sign of of a uh, overactive stress response. Um, but you know, a lot of what I am looking at as well is not only heart rate variability, and, and you know, we talk about sleep. I have them fill out several questionnaires that measure stress, the perceived stress scale, and um, the multidimensional assessment of interoceptive awareness um, to, to tell me how how are they tuned into their body, which we see decreases with stress. But a lot of what I'm seeing is quantified by how they move. So. Typically, when I see people that are, are highly stressed, and we can talk about the different variations or presentations of stress, but um, in general, they move with a lot of effort, too much effort. Uh, it's very laborious for them to move. They feel um, stuck or stiff. Um, they often have uh, breathing dysfunction, namely that they either breathe too much or not in the right places or they hold their breath a lot. I certainly see a lot of um, chronic breath holding. Um, and so what I'm looking for, for from a movement standpoint is I'm looking for where is this person threatened, right? Because stress is really about the perception of threat, the inability to cope with something either internally or externally um, creates a response of stress. So I'm looking at where is this person stuck in their body and uh, where are they stuck, you know, autonomically? And there's a couple other tests that, that, I'll, that I also do to kind of check out their autonomic nervous system, um, to, specifically to test out their vagus nerve and that kind of thing. Yeah. So is breathing usually where you start with that? And, and if so, people who are listening, how, how do we define what improper breathing is, what it looks like, what it feels like? I guess sure. what, what should we look for? Yeah, well, so I think, you know, we need to be careful with, with um describing breathing as either good or bad, right? Because breathing should be flexible for the task at hand. You know, if you're going to lift a really heavy weight, you should probably hold your breath, particularly, particularly above, you know, around 70% of your one repetition maximum. But too often people are moving with, a, you know, a, a, they're moving, you know, they're lifting up their pillow as if they're, they're lifting, a, you know, a max deadlift. And so typically I look for how often is this person holding their breath? I'm also looking for how well do they tolerate um, changes in CO2 levels. So, you know, CO2, carbon dioxide, is actually what drives respiration. And so I do a simple uh, test called, you know, a breath. It's actually just a breath hold test. Um, the Buteco method would call it the control pause breath. But really what I have people do, and you can, your listeners can do this, is you just take a normal breath in through your nose, and then you take a normal exhale out through your nose. And at the end of that exhale, I just have them pause there, not breathing back in, just holding it. So they're kind of emptying out their lungs. And ideally, we would see a num they should be able to hold it for about 20 seconds, 20 to 30 seconds, without any, without any um, uh, urges to breathe back in, without any discomfort. If they go a few seconds and they feel that first strong urge to breathe back in, and they, they do, then, we, they, we, then we end the test and allow them to breathe back in, that tells me that their autonomic nervous system, their fight or flight or their freeze response is hyperactive. They're, they're overstimulated. 
And so it's a really easy test that I, I have clients do, clients do, and I have, I do it on myself to just see where am I at this, this morning. Um, so, you know, to answer your question though, about, you know, what is good breathing and what is, is bad breathing, good breathing should be breathing that is fitting to the, to the demands. You know, if you are running, uh, or, or exerting yourself heavily, you should be able, your breathing should match that. Too often, though, it's, it's over the top. They're, people are breathing in too much and not exhaling enough. So they get stuck in this kind of hyperinflated state. And you'll see these, um, the quintessential person is like, you know, you, you go to the gym and you see a kind of like a 50-year-old man who's got this big barrel chest and the flared out ribs. And, you know, when he walks, he kind of walks like a, you know, like a mini fridge. Um, those are the guys that are really uh, not exhaling appropriately and over time it rigidifies you makes you like the tin man now you met, i'm curious why you think this might happen in the first place you mentioned that people are overstimulated mm-hmm. um people like that 50 year old tin man or mini fridge yeah, example sure. i mean is, is that just is that just bad habits is that something that mm-hmm. person's been doing for years is it, is it a combination yeah. of both theory on that is there a way we can maybe prove that perhaps is there literature backing that up so great question um as far as you know why this happens you know my personal belief and 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 literature does show from the standpoint of development um not so much necessarily breathing that i found but developmentally i i believe that we get into bad breath patterns very early on in life um uh in development because that's when we are unable to enact a fully mature response to something threatening or scary, right? So all of us as, as young people, kids, uh, infants, we experience stress through, the, through our relationships with the people who are taking care of us. And because we don't have a fully formed nervous system that we can um, respond appropriately, right? So let's say you know, mom and dad are having an argument and I'm two, right? And I sense all that energy, but I have no way of expressing um, my needs. So one of the things that you start to do is you start to hold your breath, right? Because it's a classic way to protect yourself. You hold your breath, you tense your muscles, it helps you feel safer. Over time and with repetition and then pile, you know, you compile that with um, bad habits, you know, sitting a lot in school and uh, sitting a lot at work, um, you know, poor, you know, potentially poor air quality or being exposed to any, you know, environmental pollutions, all of that stuff combines to create this pattern where we're always constantly holding our breath. And, you know, I think society and culture is, is, um, has predisposed us to that because the, at the end of the day, our culture is set up for striving, right? For always driving, pushing, pushing, pushing. And why wouldn't breath, why wouldn't our breath, um, mirror that struggle? That, that, that's a good point. I mean, that, I personally feel that modern lifestyle has a lot to do with this. You know, I think what you're alluding to. So with that said, uh, things that we can change some of those lifestyle habits per se, you know, I think it's, it's tough. Um, and it's, you know, always highly individualistic depending on the person that's coming into your clinic. Mm-hmm. But in, instead of just having someone just overhaul the entire lifestyle, you know, you have to, change your job, you know, change your sleep, change your diet. What are just some like really simple things that we can start with? Sure. Well, so I think the first uh, thing that I typically um, work with in, in terms of helping people to uh, reduce this kind of pull or, or, or struggle with, with particularly with breathing 
is teaching them how to exhale appropriately. And usually that means just extending their exhale. So one of the techniques that we'll do is just, they'll take a normal, you know, have people take a normal breath in through their nose and then a full exhale through their nose also, actually. So I want to stimulate nasal breathing as best I I can. Um, So that I basically have them exhale as long as possible and just pause at the end of that for as long as possible. And then take air in as you need it and then continue that pattern. And that will automatically get your ribs to drop down, get you out of breathing into your neck and into your chest, uh, which are typical signs of, of problematic breathing if, if, the, if that baseline. Um, and, and encouraging people to um, create an environment in which they're moving around and they're challenging different kind of uh, components of their body. So um, getting into different positions and exploring how they're moving and how they're breathing uh, is an excellent way to kind of bring these subconscious um, kind of patterns into awareness. And then that allows us to change them. So it doesn't have to be um, anything, you know, wholesale changes. Although, you know, to be honest, many of my patients do need wholesale changes and do undergo those. But um, for for the the lot of us, I think just increasing your exhale, um, moving more and in different positions than which we're used to. And, um, and, and, and really focusing on, on feeling, uh, and we'll talk, we're probably sure we'll probably talk about this, but feeling your body, right? Bringing your attention internally instead of being so externally focused are really some nice, easy ways to start. Of course, there's many ways to, to do this. Well, yeah, can you elaborate on that point? You mentioned going through some movements that you're not accustomed to. Is that referring yeah. to some of the developmental stuff like the uh, uh, crawling, rolling, that kind of thing? Yeah, so uh, I do use those a lot. Um, but typically what I'll have people do is I just have them lay on their back um, and roll around and move around slowly. And I guide them. And I actually have, um, you know, I've got some guided ones that are up on my website and on YouTube and that kind of thing. Um, if people are for looking for specific examples. But uh, we move very, typically we tend to move, particularly when stressed, our brain kind of drops down into more of a rigid um, predictable patterns. It becomes more primitive, um, both from a blood flow standpoint, it moves down into the, into the lower brain, the brain stem and the amygdala, um, you know, emotional brain limbic system. And, uh, so we lose the ability to move with choice, with conscious awareness. So I have people lay on their back and we try different things. I have them, you know, maybe let's lift your right arm up overhead and just notice how that changes the position of your lower back or, how you, do you hold your breath here? Um, you know, what do you do with your jaw and neck? Do you tighten your jaw or do you perhaps, um, you know, uh, tilt your head to one side? And they start to notice those differences, And that really brings a sense of awareness to the body uh, that didn't exist before. And it gives them a sense of choice. Like, oh, I can move my arm a little bit differently than this. And we see this all the time, right? We'll have people that will come in and, you, you know, they've got shoulder pain and you have them just lift their arms up overhead. And they do it the same way each time right? Without even giving it a thought of how they're doing that. But if we change the way that their, their brain perceives that movement, uh, we see it, we see a big difference. So, so with that said, uh, you know, I'm thinking about my clientele. I, I deal with a lot of hard charges, you know, a lot of, a lot of athletes, CrossFit athletes, weekend warriors, that style. And, you know, I, I struggle sometimes with getting people to slow down. 
um, just going back to basics, things like that. And, you know, obviously just like anything else you would do in a clinical setting and in a, in a coaching setting, the way that you frame it and the way that you speak to patients matters. I, I think oftentimes more so than whatever the treatment is in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, what have been some ways, you know, be it mentors, be it continuing education, things that have improved the, the way that you, you know, communicate with patients, either, either people you learn from or trial and error, or maybe a combination of both. Sure. Sure. Well, so I definitely, um, highly recommend, um, you know, reading uh, heavily on pain science. So, um, you know, the explain pain book is tremendous. Um, therapeutic neuroscience education, um, uh, is, is tr- tremendous, is a tremendous resource for people to learn how to, um, if, particularly if you're, if you're a, a, you know, a provider of some a healthcare provider to, to learn how to interact with people in pain, um, or, or just to slow down and right. And not even necessarily just pain, but just to how to, um, interact with people in a way that kind of helps you meet them where they are so that you can help them take them where they sometimes need to go. So the way that I handle um, these situations is, is, you know, first off, I'm not here to take anything away from someone. So if you want to work out hard, by all means, do that. But we have to understand that life is about a balance and it's, it's like a pendulum. And if you swing so hard one way, right. Um, you know, with heavy lifting or whatever that is, if it's, it's repetitive, um, even if it's varied, like, you know, which it is in CrossFit, but it's still the same intent, often the very much the same intensity level. Um, we have to get that pendulum to swing back the other way so that it ends up in the middle. Because at the end of the day, if we continue to overexert with very little um, recovery, uh, eventually you will burn out or get hurt. And, you know, in, in, in traditional cultures, I mean, their recovery periods um, were sometimes, you know, months, right? They would have, they would have people... Um, you know, in the, in the ancient Rome, I mean, they'd have people, uh, you know, rest or, or go off into the wilderness for, for a month to recover from an illness or injury. Now, I'm not saying that we do that now. I'm just saying I think that our culture really does a poor job of, of prioritizing um, the little things, the, the rebuilding, the recovery, and, and varying our, our experience. So the way I work with people is I just help them to understand that, look, this is an important part of your process. And in fact, it will will help you do the things that you want to do better because at the end of the day, your ceiling will be quite low if you continue to push this and this uh, with this similar intensity day in and day out. Mm -hmm. Because if it were just working out, right, if it were just going to the gym and then you didn't do anything the rest of the day, um, that would be one thing. But, you know, we couple going hard, hard at the gym, hard at work. Many people have stressed home lives. They're not getting enough sleep. They're, you know, eating inflammatory in eating an inflammatory diet. They're spending way too much time in their car. And all of this stuff is coalescing to the point where it just becomes a tipping point. And so being able to slow down, I think is, is a skill, not, not a, um, not a punishment. Gotcha. Now you work in a cash-based practice, correct? I, I work in a mix. So I see, um, both, I see a fair number of cash, patients as well as, um, we do, we do, um, take out of network as well. So, um, so we'll basically, we'll bill on, on the patient's behalf, but I do gotcha. see, um, patients predominantly kind of out of pocket one way or another. Got you. Well, you know, with, with the heavy emphasis on the things you've already discussed, it, yeah. it seems that it, 
carries a large psychological component as well. Um, so I'm just curious as to how close you might work with other professionals in your community, be it counselors, psychologists, I, I guess, how do you market? What are some of your referral sources? Mm. Well, I do work very closely with several psychologists, um, with counselors. I, I work with a psychiatrist as well. Um, although she, she's a non-prescribing, um, uh, psychologist, psychiatrist. Um, so I work with them very closely, particularly in cases where there are uh, heavily, heavy relational trauma issues, uh, issues of abuse and that kind of thing. Uh, so I do, I, I lean on them a lot to help me with, with some of those things, because certainly I'm not providing psychology services. Although I will say that the body influences the mind heavily, obviously. So we do see improvements in strong improvements with working with the body. Um, as far as kind of how do patients find me? Um, they find me via majority, uh, majority uh, through word of mouth um, on on my website, and then through I do work with a, a few local physicians that are that predominantly work with um, uh, chronic pain and, and persistent pain issues. So, with that said, um, you know, I, I know over the past year, and it's finally becoming you know so prominent about every day, the, the opioid crisis. I mean, the APTA mm-hmm. went all in with, you know, choose PT last year, mm-hmm. year and a half. Um, are you getting a lot of physicians sending folks to you to try to get them off medications? Uh, have you had success with that? Because I know in some cases it's expected to actually take years for a patient to wean off the drugs if they've been on it for a long, long time. What's your experience with that? So I see a lot of patients that are on um, opioids uh, or, or some other type of, uh, you know, long-term uh, pain, pain management, whether they're it's anti-inflammatory, you know, prescription anti-inflammatories or something like that. Um, I do not currently get a lot of referrals specifically for, you know, reduce, helping them to reduce pain medication, aside from the fact that by reducing their pain, one would hope that we reduce their pain medication. Um, so, but have, so have I seen since that kind of APCA has really pushed for that? Have I seen an increase in that in my personal practice? I have not seen a, a difference there. I do think it's an important thing to to market. I don't know how how much that's trickling down to people outside of uh, of physical therapists, though. Currently, gotcha. Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah. So, uh, just switching gears a little bit here. Um, I know just from talking to you the past, uh, you're a fermented foods enthusiast. <laughs> I guess is that what you call it? I would say that's a, that's accurate. Yeah. <laughs> And, yeah. and you got some reasons for that too, right? Like what, like what, what role does just diet in general play into stress management, into sure. you know, decreasing cortisol, you know, improving our lifestyle, all, all, all the things you discussed so far. Absolutely. So yeah, so I am a big uh, fermented foods, foods goon. Uh, and those, for those not in the know, um, you know, fermented foods would be foods that are, are um, preserved or cultured by naturally occurring bacteria um, and yeasts as well. So I'll make like things like sauerkraut and kimchi. I make some sourdough bread. Um, I make a thing called beet kvass. Uh, I don't know if I'm actually saying that word correctly, but K-V-A-S-S. Um, but basically it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's cut up beets and water and some salt and uh, it ferments. And so it creates this really nice uh, tonic um, I'm trying to think what else I make just to impress you. Um, you have a distillery in your garage? <laughs> I do not. I do not have that yet. Um, but uh, yeah, so you know, the reason that I make those is that our our current food system is really bereft of of natural foods. 
you know, traditionally cultures would preserve their foods by means of, of lactobacillus bacteria um, fermentation. And we're not doing that anymore. And so what's happening is we're seeing a lot of gut dysfunction, you know, this, this notion of kind of gut dysbiosis or an overgrowth or of bad bacteria or a change in the environment within the, the, um, the, the, the intestines, particularly the large intestine, which is where most of the, um, the bacteria, microbiome resides. Um, and so we know for certain that people who are exposed to a lot of stress have automatically have alterations in the, in the composition of their gut bacteria. So stress hormones, particularly cortisol, actually kills beneficial bacteria in the gut. So it creates an environment in which bad bacteria can proliferate. And of course, that has a whole host of functions. Most importantly for our realm is uh, creates inflammation. In fact, I believe, and, and studies are starting to show that this is probably the greatest source of inflammation: is an inflamed um, or, you know, leaky gut. The you know the more scientific palatable term is um, intestinal permeability. But, but yeah, so we're seeing a lot of of inflammation and 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 a whole host of problems, whether it's mood disorders to um, neurological disorders to pain, all have this. Um, uh, unhealthy gut. So fermented foods are a great way to um, bring, you know, restore a healthy uh, gut and improve digestion, and in many cases reduce reduce pain and reduce inflammation. Yeah. So you said uh, mood disorder. So is that is that affect our hormones? Is that where the the role that plays into that potentially? Potentially. So um, so there's a there's a nerve that comes out of the brain stem and it supplies all internal organs all the way to the colon and that nerve is the vagus nerve the v-a-g-u-s and um, it has most of its fibers actually travel from the gut back to the brain so it's a bi-directional pathway and there are numerous studies showing that a disruption in the, the health of the bacterial colonies in the large intestine are correlated with neurological and mood disorders. I'm talking Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, anxiety, depression. I mean, we're seeing some really fascinating stuff here that, that's showing that may, maybe a lot of these diseases start in the gut or at least have a common ground of, of a disrupted gut. And so what my interests are is, right, so it's like, okay, what starts first? Is it the gut that's all messed up because of poor food choices or is it, uh, which I think is part of it, or is it because almost everyone in our culture is chronically stressed, therefore creating an environment in their gut that allows for bad bacteria to, to proliferate um, or, or, you know, in you know, poor bacteria, bacteria that are unhealthy for us uh, to proliferate, um, thus creating this whole cycle, which cre uh, increases more stress, certainly changes our, our, um, our, home, our hormone levels and uh, creates a whole host of dysfunction. Gotcha. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, and Seth, I kind of almost want to well, ask your opinion on something right now because I love this holistic approach that you take with everything and how complete and comprehensive it is, and all the different areas you're looking into. And I'm starting to think myself, okay, you know, where, where, and when am I learning some of this stuff in school? At least for for our curriculum, a lot of this isn't necessarily taught in the conventional PT curriculum. Um, we are, start, of course, starting to get more into chronic pain and pain science. And I do give our program credit for taking our you know, some certain classes that may have been devoted to modalities previously and turning it into more of a pain science course, but um, it still seems like 
Pete team may have a, a long way to go in some of these areas. So do you think that there, there needs to be more of this taught in school? And then how do we go about, you know, making sure that other PTs that do work with athletes are, are taking these things into consideration? Um, yeah, I think that's a, a, a great point and a great question. And, and I think that while it's tough to fit everything into PT school, right? I, I personally believe, and this is maybe a whole other rabbit hole, that um, there could be a lot done to reframe um, how physical therapy instruction is delivered in school um, and really looking at, at, at systems instead of parts, right? And we kind of traditionally, we looked at like the neuro, neuro, neurological injury over here. And then on the other, you know, the room next door, we've got your orthopedic injuries. And those, those rooms don't really, those, those um, they don't really ever combine or, or, or chat. At least they didn't in my, during my training. Um, let alone anything about about the state of, of people's nutrition or the levels of their stress or you know their their the, the quality of their relationships and how that may influence um, pain. So while I think we need to get more of this in school, I'm not sure how that fits into the current model. One would really need a, an overhaul of that of that education model, I think, to bring that in. Um, for me personally, it has been through well two things. One, my own voracious desire to know more and then but but also i think you know through my own experiences right so my own uh you know high stress uh, my own uh, uh in fact i had a had to have a um a, a surgery a little it was a benign surgery but i had to was, i had to actually have my appendix taken out and after that i had uh, had to take some antibiotics and i developed a ton of allergies after that that I never had before, and so what I discovered was that those bacteria or my that those antibiotics um, changed the the gut health, my own my own gut health, making me actually more reactive to environmental um, irritants than before. So I had to really learn a lot about this to to help improve my own self. And then of course I was noticing this in all my clients as well. So you know I think there's some there's some great resources out there. The Institute of Functional Medicine or IFM is a great resource. You know they teach their courses to anybody who wants to take them. Um, you know any any healthcare professional that wants to take them um, and can use them you know responsibly, which I believe PTs should certainly have at least some education in that. I'm not saying that we should be um, you know handing out supplements or or anything like that. That's certainly not something I I, I do or or believe that we should do. But having a better a knowledge of um, this kind of functional medicine, holistic approach to management, I think is critically important. Um, now you're on the continuing, ed circuit, continuing education circuit too as well. Can you plug your course a little bit and tell us about what you're doing? Sure, sure, sure. So I am teaching, um, starting later this year, I'm teaching a uh, course called Stress, Movement, and Pain, a systematic approach, which talks about a lot of what we've discussed, particularly in the, in the, in the first half about about how, how do we monitor stress in the body? How do we understand um, how stress impacts not only how we move, but how we perceive the world? Um, and how can we change and modify um, our own perceptions to, to um, mitigate stress, right? Rather than just manage stress or to treat the body like it's a, a parts. So I'm gonna be teaching that. Uh, I think we have like five locations set up right now. It's on my website, which I'm sure we'll link to. Um, but it's, it, it, it is offered for, for continuing education credit for, I believe, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and even athletic training as well. So, um, you can get your, uh, CEUs for that as well. But I, I believe that we need to bring this knowledge of 
of the nervous system stress, threat, and more of a truly a biopsychosocial model, not just check the box and then go back to pushing on a joint, but really um, expanding our repertoire of how we work with how we work with people. So yeah, so that starts later this year. I think my first course is in August of 2018. So this has been great conversation. I mean, it's it, awesome. I mean, this is something, these are things I'm going to incorporate, you know, tomorrow first awesome. thing with some of my patients. I got a few in mind, uh, especially in the chronic pain world. Yeah. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us. Before we sign off, can you tell the people where they can find you if they want to look you up? Sure. So um, a couple of different ways. Uh, the best way would be to check out my website. So sethoberst.com, S-E-T-H-O-B-E-R-S-T. Um, you can also follow me on, I have a Facebook page, it's just facebook.com slash Seth Oberst. And then um, you can also find me at the same handle uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, so, but the best kind of hub for kind of filing new article, finding new articles, finding my, I have a book list that talks about a lot, you know, shows all these books that I've read regarding the stuff we've discussed. Um, that's all on my website. Yeah, that, we'll book list that, is ex- that book list is extensive, man. I was, I was checking that out earlier today and I, I realized I've got a long way to go, man. Uh, but thank you for putting together a list like that and, and even categorizing it. So, uh, uh you know, I think I want to find one first in that life and development category had my, uh, was piquing my interest. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's taken me a while to, um, to kind of populate that list, but I, I actually need to update it some more. I've got uh, five or six more to put on there, but yeah, I appreciate it. Awesome, man. Well, um, as always to our listeners, if you can, please go on to iTunes and leave us a review. Uh, it's how we reach more people, man. The, pop, the podcast game is kind of a popularity contest. So if you can go on and leave a review, that would be great. It's also a great way to leave a question for us so we can continue to have topics to, that we talk about that you want to hear. Uh, one last um, you know, uh, shout out for Seth for coming on here. We really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Uh, as always, I would check out his website. There are some great content in the blog. Uh, that blog has a ton of great articles on there. Um, if you could, uh, please uh, check out our fa- our website at www.betterfasterpodcast.com or Instagram at betterfasterpodcast. Again, send us questions. We want to talk about what you want to hear. Uh, if you want to find out more about Brandon, please go to at VertexPT or VertexPT.com or find out more about what I'm doing. Go to CarolinaPerformanceTraining.com or at CPT underscore strength. Thanks, and uh, we'll check you guys out next Monday. This episode is brought to you by Vertex PT Specialist. One patient per doctor physical therapy per hour. Guaranteed. The best physical therapy ever. Check us out at VertexPT.com or on the gram at VertexPT.